China is rising. It's the biggest international relations story of the last few decades. The Middle Kingdom is growing stronger economically and militarily, and it's trying to expand its cultural influence. Nobody questions any of these things about China. But what is up for debate is what kind of rise is China having? Is it going to be peaceful and play nice? Or is it going to make trouble? If you're one of China's neighbors, you are likely thinking they are going to be troublemakers. Also, what does a divided and distracted United States have to say about China's rise? This week, Steve and I are joined by our good friend, Dr. Galen E. Jackson of Williams College, and we'll talk about China's challenges in their neighborhood in South and East Asia. This is episode 42 of The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I am your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sumi? I am doing all right. Unexpected benefit of the uh, curfew here in Los Angeles. We are in our fourth day of overnight curfews, Mm. is that my girlfriend's apartment is much, much quieter, which means I'm out of the closet. Oh, nice. Well, congratulations on that. Quick quick, uh, footnote on that. However, if you hear sirens or uh, helicopters or fireworks, as is the custom in Echo Park, it's just part of the color of the show. Go ahead. Yeah, understood, man. We also have our esteemed guest host, Galen Jackson, back with us after a two-week hiatus. How you doing, Galen? Doing all right, man. Was visiting the new nephews. My sister-in-law just had twins. Was helping out with that. Everything's good except my haircut. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it could be worse. Could be better too, but uh, yeah. we're all doing quarantine cuts, so. Could be a lot better, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> twins though, like identical? That's a lot, right? That's a lot. Identical male twins, man. It's, uh, oh. I mean, big, they're, yeah. they're going to be adorable, but being newborns, I know what that's all about. Not a lot of sleep going on. Good on you for helping out your sister. Um, yeah, man. I mean, yeah. fun to do too. They're they're cool little guys. Wow, lying, lying on the air about his family. <laughs> <laughs> so we're coming at you on a special Tuesday. We usually record on Tuesdays. This Tuesday is Blackout Tuesday. Me referenced the fact that we're currently under curfew in Los Angeles, and I mean throughout most of the major cities in the United States. Due to the protest activity after the extrajudicial killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, now there are massive protests in every corner of the country and across the world against police brutality and for black lives. And, uh, you know, we certainly weren't going to post this on Blackout Tuesday. We figured it was all right to record because we generally post on Thursdays. We want to acknowledge what's happening. And generally, you know, we've tried to stay away from domestic politics in the United States as much as possible. Uh, Sometimes it's not possible. Increasingly, it it has become less and less possible over time. There's two reasons for that. One is, as political scientists, it's incumbent upon us to discuss the impact of domestic politics on international relations. So we have to come at it from that angle. We also have to come at it from the angle of being Americans 
and human beings and having our own thoughts and feelings about what is going on. I don't think we can or should project, pretend towards objectivity in, in this case. We stand with the protesters. We felt it was important to say that, you know, and to whatever extent we have a platform, tiny though it may be, we felt it was important to, to use it to, to deliver that message. Very, very big things are afoot in yeah, the United States right. and across the world right now. Yeah, this is not, I mean, it's it's one thing to say this is American domestic story, but demonstrations about George Floyd, have they have taken on interna- international significance uh, Absolutely. All, all over the world. They've taken on international relations significance as it's become a discussion and conversation among and in one way and two way conversations of world leaders. I would just say this, like um, as we're saying our, our brief personal bits, tomorrow is the last day of I will teach this this academic year. It's the last day of the quarter. And I'll simply, you know, this, this week has been a little bit hard for all the obvious reasons. And it's been tough to do office hours and to talk to students who Specifically, especially those that are graduating, right? That are that thought they were, <laughs> that thought this time last year that they would be coming into the hottest job market in uh, in a generation. No, you're coming into quarantine curfew. It's like double yeah. secret probation. Yeah, uh, a depression, a curfew, uh, a, a depression, a quarantine, and now protests, riots, and looters. Like they're getting all of some of the toughest bits of American 20th century history, all in in one stretch. But I would simply say the following, which is it's in this time, this period where time has sort of felt like every single day was the same and also different and also going on forever, that this time too shall pass, that much of the story of America is one of disappointment and uh, moderate correction. And <laughs> incrementalism, right? That's right. And yeah. while that sounds incredibly pathetic, given the aspirations of this country, it is, however, far better than I challenge you to look through the catalogs of history. It is far better than most civilizations, empires, countries ever even come close to. And I would simply say this, keep, keep trying to be kind to one another and have a little faith that this country will move forward and be better. That's a lovely sentiment. Yeah, your students are lucky to have you. That's really good. Sometimes. <laughs> I, I would also say, and, you know, it's been somewhat difficult to come up with happy things to say at the moment. Things are dark right now, but you keep pushing through and you typically come out stronger on the other end. So yeah. something good hopefully will come out of this in the end if we all do keep working together. And as Sumi said, being kind to one another. Yeah. Nothing worth having comes easily. I'm in general agreement with that. True reform requires struggle, ideally peaceful struggle. You know, if you are being oppressed, then there's going to be a reaction. It's just that simple. With all of that said, thank you for the lovely sentiments. And in other news, we have our very first, after 42 weeks, our very first listener question. Yeah, look, we are grateful for all of our fan. And, <laughs> and this, this question, it's, I mean, it's a really good question. We were, it's a great question. While we were getting ready for the show, we were talking, we were admiring this question. So this comes from... It's a beautiful question. It's huge, huge, beautiful. 
Gorgeous. <laughs> Superlatives. <laughs> People can't believe how tremendous this question is. Tremendous question. Jokes aside, Connor and Raleigh asked a very good question. So he says the following. I've heard commentators say that a drop in oil prices is going to be a drag on the economy. I've also heard that high oil prices are going to be a drag on the economy. I get that high oil prices hurt industries that rely on fossil fuels. I get that low oil prices hurt producers. So what gives? What is the magic here? What is the magic oil price that doesn't hurt the economy? Good one, Connor. Yo, I read it so you all can have a shot at it. I'm going to go ahead, guys. All right. So, so full transparency, we reached out to uh, Professor Pasha Madavi, who you may remember is our friend from graduate school, uh, is now a professor, assistant professor at uh, UC Santa Barbara. And it's got a new book out. Yes, new book, uh, specialist in oil and and more generally oil nationalization or energy more generally and more specifically oil nationalizations. Uh, we we had not heard back by uh, time of publication of recording, so he's the expert. I'm going to try to do an, an expert job or an amateur job of answering your question. So there, that's a great question. Why is it that being too high and too low both causes economic problems? It's because there's kind of a Goldilocks zone. Right where it's neither uh, too hot nor too cold, nor too cold, but just right. If the price of oil is too high, as you've said, Connor, that harms consumers. If it's too low, then it harms producers. But within a certain band, it is possible to plan for variation in the price of oil. So if it hovers around a median value of, let's say, 60 or $70 a barrel, which is kind of where it's been for a long time up before the coronavirus crash, you know, 10 bucks more expensive, 10 bucks less expensive. That's the kind of variation you can expect to have. And that's kind of priced into everybody's model. So it's predictable. And your inputs for manufacturing or transportation or wherever it may be, if you are a consumer, remain at a point where you can make a profit for whatever it is you're doing. If you're a producer, you can also make a profit uh, because you need to make fixed investments. The problem comes when you have a sudden disruption because it takes a long time to figure out how to do those prices. It takes a long time to figure out how to make those investments in fixed infrastructure to get the oil out of the ground. And if there's a mismatch between demand and supply, it can be years before it meaningfully adjusts. So that's why you want to have a Goldilocks zone. Other things equal, it's better on the whole for oil to be cheaper, right? Because so much of the economy is driven by, you know, energy usage. But it also causes localized pain in oil producers, as we've seen in places like Texas, North Dakota, Iraq, Iran, I guess, Angola, and, and so on, all across the world. Venezuela, another example. So hopefully that answers your question at least a little bit from a high level and uh, as a amateur oil guy. <laughs> Pasha could have done a much better job. If not, DM at Pasha Madavi on Twitter. Get at him. Yeah, yeah. Go get him, Connor. And and for, for our listeners, like, hit us up. Hit us up on Twitter, yeah. the underscore elucidators. Hit us up on Facebook. We have a Facebook uh, page. You just search for us. Hit us up on YouTube. We have a YouTube page. Just search for us. Or you can email us at the elucidators, all one word, at gmail.com. And 
hell, we'll probably read your question on the air and have a go at answering it. It's not like we have that much else going on right now. (laughs) And we like hearing from our listeners. I like when people ask me to do things I don't want to do. I like to tell them I'm busy. So maybe Pete, you can take, take that, that out and post. post what Steve said. <laughs> I also wanted to reiterate, I mean, what really strong question, by the way, Connor, we were, we were joking beforehand is the sort of question you get when you're teaching a class and you're like, great question, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't go get a PhD. So I got showed up by you, man. Thanks yeah. Connor. Yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he threatened to ask more questions too. So We'll, we'll see where that goes. We, there might, we might put a vetting process in on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, we just had, we had too many submissions this week. We can't possibly get to all of them. All right, Sumi, with all of that out of the way, where are we this week? China. China. Yes, sir. Okay. China. What's going on in China? Look, China is crazy right now it's crazy it's crazy so look check first we had the coronavirus and the whole like it's not here but it's really here going back to november then all the way through the winter of this year yeah now the wuhan flu man yeah yeah as uh as again early to the game the elucidators january 23rd check the records check as as has happened and we all know from following the coronavirus story it has moved around the world and as china went into lockdown ahead of the western world it has now recovered and meanwhile the us western europe the traditional of the last century century and a half two centuries of strong countries in the world are grappling with this thing china's yep. come out it is strong and china has beefs China has beefs <laughs> all over its neighborhood, right? China's it's, gone aggro, you might say. Yeah. So let me quickly run through all the sort of areas in which they've kind of gone ape over the past month or so while we've been battened down here in the West. In Hong Kong, they've made a move to institute a new national security law that Hong Kongers and Westerners are worried will undo permanently the one country, two systems model and basically de facto revoke Hong Kong's special status as a semi-independent entity next to China. It will be part of China. That's the worry. Uh, That's number one, Hong Kong. Number two, Taiwan, another ethnic Chinese enclave off the coast of China, much further off the coast than Hong Kong, a democracy, a thriving democracy, that China has always wanted to reunify with. But they've stressed peaceful reunification up until official communications over the past several weeks, where they have just started saying reunification and making lots of saber-rattling moves along the lines of crushing any possibility of treasonous independence. They tend to say that type of stuff, but it's become a little bit more venomous than we usually hear. And they've been saying peaceful reunification for literally decades. And they're not saying that anymore. So that's kind of a big deal. Number three, provocations in the South China Sea. So uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see on my Zoom background, directly over my left ear is a body of water called the South China Sea. It is a large body of water kind of uh, bordering Southeast Asia. So Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, obviously China, 
Taiwan, the Japanese are are in the mix as well. And uh, the Chinese have recently expanded their naval presence in the South China Sea and provoked their neighbors to the tune of wrecking Vietnamese fishing boats, encroaching on Malaysian coastal waters, and building more and more fortifications on disputed island reefs. That's number three. Number four, the Chinese are beefing with India in the roof of the world, the Himalayas. These two share a very long border that is very, very high above sea level. And the Chinese and Indians don't get along very well on this border. They usually fight with fists, but it's escalated. And the Chinese have sent more troops to the area and pushed into uh, disputed territory several kilometers in in the last uh, week or two. Number five, an anti-USA diplomatic offensive, and some would say economic offensive as well. So the Chinese have recently become much more vocal and much more aggressive, pushing back on American leadership, global leadership during the coronavirus. There hasn't been any from America, notably. China has really made an attempt to assume that mantle, and they've pushed back on America making noises about all of its moves, violating civil rights within China and threatening its neighbors outside of China, and basically pointing to the failures, the manifest failures of American leadership, both (laughs) political and moral, and saying, you guys don't have a leg to stand on, which unfortunately is true. In my opinion. (laughs) But those aren't the only things that have happened in the last couple of weeks. But it's kind of like five major areas that China has really become more aggressive in in a very short period of time. And we felt that we needed to talk about it because it seems like stuff might be kicking off with these guys in a more serious way. And we might be entering a period of increased tensions to the point of even perhaps starting a Cold War with China. Hopefully um, cold if it goes warm. I don't yeah, let's let's hope it stays cold. Sooms, can you briefly give us previously on China's near abroad? So by that, I mean China's neighbors and, uh, you know, the relationships they've had yeah. <laughs> in recent history. Yeah, let's do a little bit of uh, revisiting China. So China is a geographically quite big country. It extends from the Pacific into the guts of central Asia. It has 14 land border states. So for those of you uh, close followers of American domestic politics who think that, God, it's really tough being America and having to worry about Mexico, 14. It also has maritime disputes with countries such as Taiwan, like Steve mentioned, Japan, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei. It has territorial disputes with India, which Steve also talked about. Steve, I got to say, while you were talking, I was like, man, this is like if China went into the beef store and got the full sampler, like they wanted every <laughs> every cut of beef they could get and they wanted it all right now. You could say it's a real poo-poo platter of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, they, they, they <laughs> Diplomatic went, incidents. They went for it all. But often when you get the appetizer sampler, you're going to end up regretting that. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of. I mean, this is kind of the question on China, right? In this moment where the U.S. is divided and distracted, China is strong, and it has had lots of territorial 
and political rivalries in its neighborhood. Yeah. And the question is, as Steve started to lay very nicely lay the table for, is like, what is happening with China? Why are they doing this now? What does it mean? China has been growing stronger and stronger over the last four, four decades. It's economically on some levels surpassed the U.S. By most forecasts, it will surpass the U.S. on every reasonable measure within the next 10, 20 years. There's, it's becoming militarily stronger and stronger. It's trying to strengthen ties with certain strategic neighbors. It's trying to build massive international infrastructure projects. This is building ports, roads, airplanes. It's going global. But what's happening right now? Is it trying to shore up dominance or hegemony in its neighborhood, which is the Indo-Pacific, right? Yeah, this is the question. It's like, are, are, are they coming at the king? Right. And if they are, are they going to miss? <laughs> right. It's right. like, is this, is this, is this going down? Like, are we doing this? Like, cause man, they're, they're doing a lot of stuff and we need to get into it as international relations people. It's like the United States has very clearly fallen down on the job, fallen on hard times is having major, major internal issues. China is, you know, I think largely viewed as if not a superpower in waiting than an actual superpower. And I don't think anybody was expecting it to be number one right away, but when number one slips on a banana peel and cracks its head open, number two has kind of got to keep moving, right? This is the big international relations questions of the time. Like there's two of them. What happens with China's rise like, do they end up becoming liberalized? Do they become a democracy eventually? Do they become, like, integrated into as we know international relations to be? Or do they forge their own path, keep their own authoritarian regime? And the other question is, what happens with the U.S.? As China gets stronger and the U.S. declines relative to China's strength, what happens with the U.S.? Does it keep the team together or does it go America first and try and, like, fight its own way, which is dumb and wrong? Yeah, <laughs> we don't encourage it. We don't condone it. Will there be a documentary in 20 years called The Last Dance? <laughs> I don't know. Who's the Michael Jordan looking back triumphantly? This is bizarre. Mm, last yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just silence. <laughs> silence. We have, yeah. we have no answer to that. What we can do is we can go through some of these scenarios or situations or geographies that I laid out. I laid out five situations. We're going to go through them in a little bit more detail. Right, guys? So there's a, I guess, a five-sided can of worms here. It's a, it's a, it's a pentagonal can just full of ugly, nasty, squelchy, dirty worms. Which, which side should we open first? Let's go Hong Kong. Yeah, all right, Hong Kong. That's the one we've talked about the most, right? All right, all right I'll do, yeah. I'll do this quick revisit because we've talked about it on the show a lot. So for 99 years, Hong Kong is technically under British control. Starting in 96, 97, there is a negotiated and still very weird 50-year period in which Hong Kong will become part of of mainland China. Hong Kong is semi-democratic. It enjoys lots of what we would all consider to be more of a Western life, free press, free, free speech, all these things. And for the last 18 months... The mostly most of the time over the last eighteen months until the the coronavirus came through and made mass protests not viable, the Hong Kongers were in the streets, like uh, millions, literally millions of just a few million people in this little piece of land were in the streets protesting Chinese aggression into Hong Kong. This past week, 
the Chinese passed this bill that Steve Steve introduced. The thing is that right now we still don't really know what this bill is, and it's not it's a secret of, bill. It's right? not, yeah, because <laughs> it, has, it hasn't been written as far as we know. But we under, but most of the the consensus, the general agreement on what this bill is going to be, is that it's going to be China pushing into Hong Kong, and this is also reflected in the reactions of the two countries that have invested the most in Hong Kong from the West, which is the United Kingdom and the United States both of which have started discussions, legislation in the U.S. uh, by Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, have started to put forward legislation that would create a pathway to citizenship for Hong Kongers to leave Hong Kong and come to the U.K. and U.S. respectively. Real quick aside on the American disarray. If you are an America firster, and when it comes to immigration policy, this has to make you positively furious. Yeah. All right. So that's that's Hong Kong. And yeah, we've talked about Hong Kong at length. We had two full shows on Hong Kong, and then we kind of stopped talking about it because the protests stopped because of the Rona. And nobody could actually go out and protest. As it turns out, Hong Kong did a fairly creditable job of stopping the Rona. And so the protesters came back out on the streets it appears that Xi Jinping, the, the president of China, the leader of China, the Red Emperor of China. The Grand Pooh Yeah, the Grand Pooh Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever. He was waiting for his opportunity to squash Hong Kongers' aspirations for freedom, independence, and democracy in, in that city-state. Again, we don't know what is in this national security law. We can... We can basically suspect that it's going to include extradition to the Chinese mainland, which was what actually kicked off the latest round of protest, was a bill that was eventually withdrawn by the Hong Kongers that would have allowed the Chinese to extradite Hong Kong citizens to the mainland. It's, it's going to be something like that. It's going to be an expansion of the Chinese security apparatus into Hong Kong. There's going to be way more Chinese intelligence, Chinese plainclothesmen, and so on. In Hong Kong, people will start disappearing, most likely. The free press will probably be stifled progressively. And they will, over time, probably not right away, but over time, turn Hong Kong into Shenzhen, which is the Chinese city immediately across on the mainland from Hong Kong. And they'll probably merge the two cities. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that's the logic. Like, we talked about this before with Shenzhen, that if you look at photographs from the last several decades of Shenzhen, you see it quite literally going from the picture of a sleepy Southeast Asian fishing village to a glistening futuristic metropolis that, that will merge at least aesthetically, architecturally, seamlessly into Hong Kong. But yeah. politically and culturally, this is going to be tough. Yeah, and unfortunately, right. you can certainly try to raise the costs of doing it with things like sanctions, but there's not a whole lot that can be done to stop China from doing this, as far as I can see. Yeah, absolutely not. <clears throat> there is probably next to nothing to be done, and it seems like Xi Jinping is willing to pay whatever costs accrue. Yeah. One of those costs might be millions of Hong Kongers immigrating to Britain and the United States, respectively. There's been noises in the UK about allowing up to 3 million, 3 million Hong Kong passport or UK passport holders. Keep in mind that the UK controlled Hong Kong for about a century. And so there's this 
kind of vestigial UK diplomatic presence in Hong Kong. They've awarded, you know, grandfathered in three million Hong Kongers with UK passports, basically. But this is also a testament to the declining power of England in the United Kingdom, because as a part of the handover treaty, they're supposed to step in if China goes too far during the 50-year transition. And instead, they're offering, hey, we're not going to step in, but why don't you all come over to our house? Right. Yeah. No, the UK isn't stepping in any place, man. UK is weak and getting weaker, but they can take a bunch of immigrants, right? I don't think that that had teeth in it when it was signed in, what, 1997? No. The decline of the UK is is old news. (laughs) Very old. 1956 Suez crisis, maybe the latest. (laughs) Yeah, but there's always further to fall. Yeah, the UK can't do anything to China, and, and the United States can make noises and sanction people, and it will. But in terms of stopping the annexation of Hong Kong, it ain't going to happen. You know, it's there's there's very little we can do. Something we might be able to do a little bit more about is the situation vis-a-vis Taiwan. Right, Galen? Yeah, it's this is a different one for for my money. I don't know if you're going to make a list of the most dangerous places in the world. Taiwan might be my number one. The Taiwan Strait. <laughs> yeah, the Taiwan Strait. I mean, what Korean Peninsula, Persian Gulf, South Asia. You can think of a few others. Of the flashpoints we're talking about today, I think Taiwan is clearly the most dangerous. Taiwan, well, I mean, Taiwan's got a, it's got a history of being under foreign occupation. I mean, I think it's the Treaty of Shimonoseki in the late 19th century where like the Japanese take it over. It's ultimately returned to China. But then during the Chinese Civil War, which ends in 1949, the Chinese nationalists who are led by a guy named Chiang Kai-shek lose to the communists led by the guy behind me on my background, Chairman Mao Zedong. Mm. And they set up a separate government in Taiwan. He's the original Pooh Bear. Look at that guy. (laughs) Yeah, he's the OG. (laughs) I believe Mao is considered to have mass murdered more than any other person in the 20th century. He's right up there with Stalin. I think it's Mao, then Stalin, then Hitler. And it's like pretty disturbing that Hitler's number three. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Great Leap Forward uh, killed. Great, be- great Leap Backward. <laughs> yeah. What was it? 50 to 80 million, depending on how you count, I guess. Something like that. Famines yeah. are tough to kind of, you know, add up the deaths for. But yeah, anyway, not good. So yeah, the, the, the nationalists lose the Civil War and they flee to Taiwan and they set up a second government claiming to be the rightful government of mainland China. And it's not until 1971, the the nationalist government in Taiwan holds China's seat at the UN Security Council yeah. until 1971. That's crazy. And to be, to be clear, this is not an awesome government. It's a military dictatorship, right? Correct. Uh, yeah. I mean, as you said earlier, the situation is much different today. It's now a robust democracy. Yeah. But yes, it's a military dictatorship under Chiang Kai-shek and then I believe his son thereafter. Yep. This things sort of start to change. The U.S. It's tough to avoid talking about in this context because it plays such a key role in the security framework here. But things start to change during Nixon's visit to China in 1972. The famous opening to China, the triangular diplomacy with the U.S., the Soviet Union, and China, uh, and the U.S. and China agree to something called the Shanghai Communique which in the words of National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger created a policy of 
quote unquote constructive ambiguity. That guy's still alive. <laughs> He's still, I mean, dude, these realists <laughs> always live the longest, man. <laughs> yeah. And well into their nineties in yes, this case. If, if you believe that men are evil in their heart, God will curse you to live forever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a Faustian bargain, right? Yeah. <laughs> So what does that mean? Yeah, so essentially it it lays out what's called the one China policy, ah. which is there is one China and Taiwan is part of China, but then it deliberately leaves vague what the hell that actually means. Right. And to this day, US policy is essentially that it does not oppose Taiwanese reunification with mainland China, but that must be carried out peacefully. Right. And it doesn't say under whose auspices, right? Correct. <laughs> and in the meantime, there's something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which is passed in 1979 during the Carter administration, which essentially says the United States has to provide Taiwan with the means to defend itself. Yes. This naturally drives China crazy. Uh, yeah. For, for the Chinese, like I've heard Chinese analysts sometimes say, like, we don't talk about Hawaii. <laughs> Right. Like <laughs> for China, their claim to Taiwan is, if anything, much greater than the U.S. claim to somewhere like Hawaii. Push back. Hawaii ain't trying to secede. Back to you. Fair enough. You've also had an American president from Hawaii. So, I mean, yeah, it really it drives the Chinese crazy whenever the United States issues a, a major arms sale to Taiwan. And this has led to flare ups in the Taiwan Straits going back to the mm. 50s. If you mm -hmm. want to know why China first decided to build its nuclear program, it's because Mao recognized that he got bullied by the Eisenhower administration during a series of crises. As recently as 1996, there was a major crisis in the Taiwan Straits, um, and President Clinton sent a quite large show of force to the Straits to defend Taiwan while China carrier was... battle group, right? I believe two carrier battle groups. Okay, that's pretty good. In response to Chinese missiles being flown toward Taiwan. Yeah. This is all to say that at some point, China's going to want Taiwan back. Taiwan, at various points, has had warm relations with mainland China, and there has yeah. been a reunification movement. That ship has largely sailed now. Especially given what's happening to Hong Kong, right? Correct. The yeah. one country, two systems model suddenly does not look very appealing to most people on Taiwan. Right. It's kind of more like a one country, one system, our system, your system is done. Correct. System. Yeah, it's, al <laughs> it's almost like you're, you're kind of saying, if I'm like connecting dots and reading between lines, that a policy that started out as something called constructive ambiguity was bound to somehow come apart. You mean the chickens are coming home to roost? Bills come yeah. and do. I'm just saying, if like you went to your significant other or friend and offered any kind of similarly convoluted plan, <laughs> they would look at you like, you must be stoned and I don't need to listen to you. Well, a lot of this is like can kicking, right? And you're able to do this stuff because China's weak. So it's not that yeah, big of a deal, right? right? A and point, we yeah. can kick this can, you know, 10, 20, 50 years down the road, worry about it later. That deal was also struck right during when the Sino-Soviet split had kind of hit its height and China was looking to the United States as a counterweight to the Soviets. Right. There's a rapprochement. Yeah. The 
you know, the deal has sort of outlived its shelf life. And, you know, China's now doing things like protest or not protesting, but criticizing the second inauguration of Tsai and wen the current Taiwanese leader who we've talked about on the show er- earlier because yes. of her leadership during the COVID crisis. Like you said, it's removed peaceful from its peaceful reuni- reunification doctrine. And the question becomes, if the balance of power continues to shift as it already has radically shifted, particularly in China's near neighborhood, is the United States going to have the will and capability to defend Taiwan? Conventionally or, or via threatening nuclear war. Well, right? <laughs> you know, and it's a point I make to my students all the time. In some ways, Taiwan is the 21st century West Berlin. Like it's tough to defend with conventional weapons, given where it's located as the balance continues to shift. Yeah. Um, Taiwan in the past, by the way, sort of tried to solve this problem by building its own nuclear program, and the U.S. rolled that back. But that's kind of the key flashpoint looking forward as I see it. Yeah, Taiwanese nuclear weapons is kind of a frightening prospect because that probably leads pretty directly to Japanese and South Korean nuclear weapons, I would imagine. And perhaps we go from, from there to Southeast Asia, and you get a pretty explosive proliferation spiral Okay, thanks. Galen, that's very good information. In the interest of time, I was going to do South China Sea. I'm actually not because I have an eye on the clock and we're headed towards 45 minutes. So I want you guys to go to a more interesting area, which is the Sino-Indian border in the Himalayas. And explain to us why it is that these two nascent superpowers, one democratic, one autocratic, two ancient civilizations that are you know, in theory, could dominate the 21st century, are fighting over some of the world's least hospitable land using literally wooden clubs. These guys on either side, the Chinese and the Indians, dress up in ceremonial uniforms, excuse me, on either side of this border in the middle of nowhere on top of a mountain, and they play Quidditch and beat the crap out of each other. (laughs) That's ordinarily how this border is kind of policed. But things have gotten a little bit more serious than that recently, right? Yeah. Real quick clarifying point, because Potter fans can be hardcore. They're not actually playing Quidditch. <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are actual actual soldiers, but they are beating each other with sticks and their their hands because they don't want to start shooting. Look, the, yeah. the very the, the quick and dirty version of this, Gil, and I'll, I'll draw the lines, you fill in the color, is, is this. The modern incarnations of India and China, as Steve said, ancient civilizations that have given the world a lot. Uh, the modern incarnations come out of the early mid-20th century, Ch- India out of British colonial colonialism. And for those of you who want to understand why there are still so many problems in the world, it's because while the British Empire was falling apart, they cut and cut and ran real quick and left a lot of territorial problems. Yeah. See the case of Israel. See the case of Cyprus. See The, the case entire of Middle East. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, and this is it. Like, Frankly, if you ever see a if you yeah. see a British contract lawyer, run. So this is <laughs> <laughs> they're called I mean, solicitors. <laughs> I mean, the, my favorite British Empire joke was like the sun never sets on the British Empire because not even God could trust a British in the dark. Like this is like <laughs> anyway. It was from an Indian, Indian parliamentarian. He gets to say that now. Apologies from, to all of our limey listeners, but you know it's true. 
But <laughs> Indian parliamentarians get to say that sort of stuff now because India is stronger than England. Anyway, uh, <laughs> here is the short of it. Like, as these borders are getting drawn, there's lots of territorial disputes, both uh, between India and Pakistan, which is continues to be a flashpoint in Kashmir and Jammu and Kashmir, as well as in various points on the Sino-Indian border. To give you a, a, a sense of how long this border is, It's more than 2,000 miles. It's like just a little bit shorter than the entire United States Pacific coast. And yes, it's the, it's, it's the ceiling of the world, right? These are, these are the highest, highest areas in the world where there are these disputes. And they're, you know, in the, in the fifties and into the early sixties, there, there were armed disputes culminating in a 1962 actual shooting war. But since then, both sides have actually showed quite a bit of restraint in terms of escalating. China goes nuclear in 1964. Is that right, Galen? Yeah, October 64, yeah. Yeah, India, in response to China going nuclear, begins its own nuclear program. And ever since then, there have been repeated territorial disputes, but they haven't really escalated. But again, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, this isn't, you know, your father's China or your grandfather's China or your great-grandfather's China. They are bigger, they are stronger, and they are looking to shore up their, their territories around them. Hit it, Galen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me is the parallel here between the the war that they fought in 1962, which happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and so the whole world is fixated on that, and China sees an opportunity for a quick and easy victory. And you wonder whether it's a similar thing going on right now. Like, we can debate why China is doing this. In some ways, this is a more stable border because you're talking about the Himalayas. And, right. you know, to, like, to quote the Princess Bride, you don't want to get involved in a land war in Asia in the first place, but you certainly <laughs> don't want to fight one at 14,000 feet. And so it's not totally clear to me what China's trying to do here. As Sumi said, both sides are under strict orders not to shoot, which is why they're just <laughs> slapping each other. China's somewhat sensitive about this area, or at least the northwestern border, because it butts both Xinjiang and Tibet. Mm, uh, And those are both very sensitive regions for China, for obvious reasons. The Dalai Uh, Lama in Tibet, right? And the Dalai Lama tends to hang out in India a fair amount of the time. That's bad for the Chinese, because they've basically absorbed and digested Tibet. And they're in the process of doing that in Xinjiang as well. Yeah, and Xinjiang is where they're, you know, putting their Muslim population in concentration camps and extending. Uh, Re-education, they're learning to sing, they're learning to dance. Yeah. (laughs) They're learning to be proud Chinese citizens and party members. As an educator, Galen, show a little respect for the system. (laughs) Uh, Mandatory fun. Fair enough, man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so, I mean... The, the the question that this all raises in my mind, and I'm I'm honestly not too worried about this situation because I don't think either side wants a shooting war. It's disputed yeah. territory, but it's territory that's tough to take for geographic reasons. Both sides have nuclear weapons. India actually, we talk about India Pakistan's uh nuclear rivalry but india's nuclear program was initially created in response to china after the 62 war that was the immediate spark and and so it's not 
it doesn't seem like something is going to turn into a conflagration here. I just don't think either side wants it. The question in my mind is if you look at the region more generally and, you know, you have India's rivalry with Pakistan, the United States is now basically allied with India and China has basically allied with Pakistan. And so you have four nuclear armed powers squaring off on opposite sides of multiple explosive political Uh, that's where i think things maybe get touchy that sounds bad but there's a whole nother school of thought that says because it's for nuclear armed powers absolutely nothing of consequence will happen and 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 given you know depending on what the political stakes are that argument can hold i think that the nature of these particular disputes particularly the India-Pakistan one, makes That's a it troubling one. Mo- yeah. more dangerous. Yeah. I agree. And there's always the chance for miscalculation, misunderstanding, and escalation. I just want to say one, well, two real quick things on the current situation with India and China. One, both India and China are building roads, and China's militarization of the area is uh, substantial. It's the largest it's been in decades. There are several thousand troops. There, They have an all-weather facility that they've built there. India ostensibly, like purportedly, said that they were building a road in this area to go to a Hindu shrine. China, of course, is not going to see the road that way. So there <laughs> is like, there is the, they're going to see it as like, oh, this is how you're going to get your armaments around. So there is increasing paranoia in that way. But Going back to the whole, like, well, if the U.S. is now unofficially, officially allied with India and China's picked up Pakistan, I got to say U.S.-India is the much better tag team, not just for personal <laughs> reasons, but, like, but, but overall, like, any team where it's like two-on-two two and one of your two is Pakistan, you got to be asking questions. Yeah, yeah. But India can, or excuse me, uh, China can carry Pakistan at least some distance. I mean... yeah. And they're going to have to. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. India, India has come a long way, but is still behind China in a lot of key metrics. The most relevant one, given our conversation right now, is that the Chinese can kind of wipe the floor with the Indians in terms of conventional warfare. When it comes to like a shooting war, if that were to actually kick off, it probably wouldn't go that well for the Indians. So Narendra Modi, the P- current PM of India, is, I think, probably less interested in pushing this further. That being said, you know, pivoting towards the United States, which classically the Indians have not done, they've been pretty serious about remaining unaligned with any of the big powers. seems like a better and better idea, given what the Chinese are up to, right? And I think this is actually a good bridge to, you know, our last segment, which is just, what are the Chinese up to here? It's pretty clear why they're doing it. It's because the United States is divided and distracted, and the Chinese feel like they have some ground to make up, given that the coronavirus came out of China, right? Um, So they become way more aggressive militarily, economically, and diplomatically in a short period of time. But don't you guys think that all this activity is just going to motivate balancing behavior on the part of China's near abroad, all of these countries surrounding China? that are increasingly worried about what these guys are doing? Look, I would echo what Sumi said earlier about all of the, all of the beefs. I mean, so look around, it's like Vietnam, not a big fan of China. India, we just talked about like Japan has major problems with China, Taiwan. Like I I'm not sold on the like 
Russian-Chinese alliance being robust. Those countries have had problems in the past as well. Like, China has one real ally, and that's North Korea. (laughs) And that's a very problematic ally that maybe is like, you know, the, the kid on your team you don't necessarily want on your team. Oh, this feels like a personal story. (laughs) (laughs) Keep in mind that uh, Kim Jong-un is uh, the literal son of heaven and is, you know, he meditates on a sacred mountain. So all of that's really good. All right. I might have shortchanged Pyongyang. Yeah. (laughs) Like, my my point is, yeah, I I think it is. And when Steve says balancing, just to clarify, this is, you know, it's leading toward, toward other countries building a coalition in order to oppose China's rise. And one thing China did for a long time was sort of boast that it was pursuing a peaceful rise. And in light of what it's been doing, that seems to be less and less the case. And I think it is inevitable that these countries will start a counterbalancing coalition. You already saw some of that, including with the United States during the Obama administration, you know, so Obama to Asia, right? TPP. Yeah, he put he put what two thousand Marines in Australia. The U.S. has been trying to coax South Korea and Japan into cooperating. It's not having a lot of success in doing that. But yeah, I think China is probably going to provoke a response from most of its neighbors. Will the United States be there to lead this response, given what's happened to the United States in the last six months? Ask me that question like second week in November. I'll have a much better answer because this is I mean, that's part of the the challenge right now. Like, you know, as Steve, we let off the show. You let off the show with with talking about, you know, the, the very sad and troubling state of domestic politics in the U.S., part of the problem is just this, like for all the tough talk, there isn't a lot of leadership there. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so here we are, like, even if China is picking all these beefs, like some guy who comes out of the club when it closes, rips his shirt off and is like, who wants to fight? These are my boys, Pakistan and North Korea. We'll take on all you all. Like <laughs> it, if, if the U S isn't going to step up and lead a coalition against them, whether it's economically with the trans-Pacific partnership and getting all these Pacific rim nations to try and balance off China or to continue to strengthen military, its military presence with with war games in the Indo-Pacific with India, bringing South Korea and Japan into those and Australia, like showing off that China cannot puff too far lest yeah. they end up in a real, in getting real pushback. Here, like, there's a real problem. Here's the real problem. And, and you, you, you kind of... Uh, you started to talk about it, that the problem that I see is that these countries that make up the possible balance and coalition against China all hate each other. Japan and South Korea hate each other. Yeah. The Taiwanese hate both of those countries, especially the Japanese. Everybody hates the Japanese for sure. Um, <laughs> the Philippine, the Filipinos hate the Japanese. The Filipinos uh, hate the Indonesians. The Malaysians hate the Indonesians, the Vietnamese hate the Chinese, but I'm sure that they hate the uh, Cambodians and Laotians <laughs> and, and on and on it goes, right? So it's really nice to have the United States there being, first of all, the big kid on the block. Secondly, able to basically talk to everybody and coordinate everybody and serve as like the backbone of a coalition. Without the United States, who's going to do it? India is kind of too far away and they're not strong enough yet. Australia, not strong enough, too far away. Japan, too hated. Actually, Japan is strong enough, but they're too hated, right? The Koreans... I don't know if Japan is strong enough, man. They could be. They still have the world's third largest economy. 
So in theory, they could actually lead a balancing coalition against China, you know, if they made some constitutional changes, got nuclear weapons and so on. Right. And if the United States continues to fall down on the job of being, you know, hegemon in East Asia, that's probably where we're headed. Wouldn't you think? I I, Uh, I mean, I think there are two big questions. One is, does the United is the United States going to have the capability and the will to deal with some of these things? I have less concern about the capability. We still have a lot of capabilities. We still, I mean, in strictly like balance of power terms, I still give the United States the nod over China at this point, even though the gap has closed very substantially in a quite yeah. short period of time. It would be a uh, it would be a painful nod. Yeah. So, but I mean, and the United States has its problems. China also has its problems, which, you know, we, we didn't get into as much their domestic situation, but China has a lot of its own issues to worry about. So in terms of capabilities, I think the United States still has a lot to rely on. I'm less convinced about the will for both good and bad reasons, yeah. um, which we can dive into. And then the second question is, are these countries able to get along, the United <laughs> States and China, over the long term? Is there yeah. some sort of grand bargain out there where like both sides can live with it? Great um, question. Or, or are we heading towards Cold War 2.0? Yeah. Does, does this relationship necessarily need to be adversarial? There are really smart people on both sides of this divide. On one side of the divide, you have the Thucydides. Thucydides trap people. Excuse me. I stutter when I get tired. Thucydides trap people saying this is inevitable when you have one hegemon on the decline and another in the wings they basically pass each other on the stairs and they fight each other and you know whatever happens happens usually the one on the rise wins because they're on the rise (laughs) right definitionally it's it's a law of history right and then there are a bunch of other people you know who were in fact in control of the United States foreign policy for the last, I don't know, a couple of decades, more or less, saying, no, it doesn't need to be that way. We can cooperate on a range of issues. Uh, we're going to need we're going to need to cooperate um, in order to get effective responses to things like coronavirus and climate change. And I think that's right. It's like we we need to work together with the Chinese as number one and number two to fix some of these Pressing global issues, economic issues, nuclear proliferation, yeah, trade issues, terrorism issues, all these issues. Sumi, you you like to talk about this stuff a lot. Global problems require global solutions, and that means the United States and China working together, right? Yeah. Look, as we've talked about for most of this calendar year is the coronavirus. The big challenges are these transnational challenges like pandemics, like climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And it requires more cooperation. And the idea that China is making land and sea grabs during while the U.S. is weak, and the U.S. is weak and trying not weaker and distracted, is and the U.S. is not doing a good job at leading and cooperating. These, doesn't bode, these times don't bode well. However, I would say, like, look, there one of one of three things happens on the other side of this very troubling time and it still is troubling times for china right they're not all the way out of their own economic uh, downturn from the coronavirus not at uh, all i mean they they have to deliver economic growth somehow right and it's like are they ready to switch from basically being export driven to having you know their internal market their own chinese consumers buy chinese products 
and support themselves like the United States? We don't know. We, we, we absolutely don't know. It, it is a terrific question. But to Galen's point, like, China's got all kinds of domestic challenges, environmental issues. The, the population is, age, is aging uh, yeah. at a crazy rate, which, you know, the short version of the demographic inverted pyramid problem is the following. You need lots of young people to be able to support the old people, especially yep. in this age where old people live much longer and can't work. What happens with the U.S.? Does it does it figure out a way to keep staying on top by working with folks that want, even folks that don't like each other, but dislike China more? A, a, a couple, I guess, a couple points of optimism, massively like undone by one point. Of We're press. entering our final segment, which is final <laughs> thoughts. By the way, yeah. everybody. So, I mean, so like, the United States has had some success doing this in the Middle East. Whatever you think of the administration's strategy, right? Like. It has gotten the Arabs and Israelis to cooperate against the mutual threat of Iran. Yeah. Like it has actually had a fair amount of success with that sort of policy. True. There is a decent amount of will in the United States now for taking a harder line against China. Like it yes. is a bipartisan consensus at this point. Like even even the Obama guys are now saying like it's time to take a harder line against China despite trying the engagement policy for a while. Yeah. I, I, my optimism is mitigated by questions like the sorts of one we raised about Taiwan. Like, is the United States going to go to war to defend Taiwan? Should the United States go? I mean, that's a great question. Like, yeah. <laughs> no and no. Next. Yeah, I, I think the answer is no and no, right? <laughs> it, it's hard to convince me. Like, it's one thing for Bill Clinton to do it in 1996 when the deck is stacked against China. It's quite another thing to do it in 2020 when the balance yeah. of power. I mean, the, like the question, you know, if you're going to if you're going to make that play, you better be sure you're going to win. And I don't think that we're 100% certain that we win that war in the 2020s. or the tw- And the longer the, the, the clock goes, the worse it gets, the worse it looks. So I think that's kind of an, an inevitability, if not this decade, then in the decades to follow. Hopefully it's accomplished peacefully, although the Chinese just struck that word from the record when it comes to re- reunification with Taiwan. You're 100% correct, Galen. There is a bipartisan consensus. It's one of the only remaining bi- bi- bipartisan <laughs> consensus in the United States. It's the fact that China, and especially the Chinese Communist Party, is an enemy. Not just a competitor, not just a frenemy, but an actual enemy. And they should be treated as such, and they should be contained and busted down. Because They're stealing from us. They have not played fair in negotiations over trade. Uh, They're threatening their neighbors. They're causing problems all over the world. And we just can't allow these guys to create a new authoritarian international order in place of the United States' formerly liberal international order, right? That's the argument. Like, this this is contrary to our fundamental national interests. And... You know, we said earlier there are two schools of thought that there's the Thucydides trap school, which means, you know, we have to fight. There's the constructive engagement or peaceful rise school, which is or or I guess globalist school, which is we, we need to cooperate on transnational issues. We can be trading partners. We don't need to fight. I think there's a third school, which is less discussed in polite company, but still 
I think has a compelling argument, which is, man, there's nothing better for internal cohesion for a nation state than a good old fashioned Cold War. Is there? Some would argue that the United States could really use a Cold War right about now because having a powerful, scary external enemy can can produce internal reforms in a hurry. Uh, right. I'm going to say no, not right. Not like not right now, right now. Like maybe <laughs> maybe come the new year, like February next year. As like, of, as not immediately, but and, and like it remains to be seen whether this is the way we want to accomplish those reforms. It's not ideal to be fighting a new Cold War against China. Right. But the, as we've said, the Chinese are probably looking at this uh, from their own perspective. Xi Jinping has his own problems. And he's like, I'm worried about internal cohesion, too. I have ethnic problems. I have even economic growth problems. It's like, you know, a nationalist campaign against the United States in a Cold War could actually serve my interests, too. Right. So the United States and China could be cooperating in like a really weird way to shore up their own internal positions. <laughs> right. There's a book that's been written about that called the useful adversaries and useful it was, adversaries. It was about China and the United States in the yeah. 1950s. I mean, I, I should just say like, I think there is something to what you're saying, Steve. There is like, well, good because I wrote my dissertation on it. God. I think there's some interesting evidence about like, you know, progressive legislation getting passed during the earlier part of the cold war, like the 1960s yeah. due to that sort of consideration. I should also say it cuts the other direction, right? It you does. Look at, like what happened during the first world war and like the unbelievable damage done to civil liberties. Also McCarthyism and, and so on. Right. Post nine 11. So like yeah. it, can, it can go different directions. One other possibility is a sort of like a, I don't know what you would call it, a cold war, but like a less hostile one than the last cold war where, you know, as China sees it, it's only doing what the United States does in the Western hemisphere. That's what it's doing in East Asia. Fucking Shanghai Jackson sticking up for the Chinese. <laughs> the Chinese Monroe doctrine. Kid. Yeah. The Chinese Monroe doctrine. Yeah. This, this is what this is what great powers do. What's the problem, right? And, well, the, I mean, the question is like that raises profound moral questions and you know profound security questions as well. But yeah. maybe there's a way both sides can live with that. Maybe there is. Uh, we will find out in the ensuing months and years. We are done. We've put a bow on China going aggro. Thanks for listening to us. Once again, if you have user questions or user listener questions, feel free to hit us up on social media or write us at the elucidators, all one word at gmail.com. Uh, we love getting questions and we'll answer them on the air. And if you guys are protesting, please stay safe and wear a mask when you're out. Yeah, we're with you. And with that, I will talk to you guys next week. Later. Later, man.